If you feel like it's hotter than it has ever been, you are not alone. Broadcasting from the Hip Hop Weekly Studios, I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Civic Cypher. I am your host, Ramses Ja. Big shout out to my man Q Ward, who is still out of the country doing exactly what he does best, changing the world. He will be back with us next week, so stay tuned. But we do have a special guest in the building. She goes by the name of Dr. Tacola. She is a sustainability scientist, and she is West Side right on time because today we are going to be talking about two very important things the first is environmental racism and the second is climate change and sustainability so welcome to the show thank you of course and uh i gotta be honest this isn't your first time on the show you've been on the show a few times but this is your first time functioning in this specific capacity basically helping out humanity in mass keep from running into this brick wall that everyone warns us about right yeah okay okay so we're gonna have a lot to talk about with uh like i said environmental racism is something that we broached on the show from time to time however uh today we're hoping to do a little bit more of a deep dive really explain what it is and how it affects uh marginalized people um in particular black people around this country um and the healthcare outcomes and and so forth and so on uh that people may not be made aware of um, in your regular travels and of course uh, naturally the climate change and sustainability we're also going to be spending some time talking about um, a the first sit-in protest of a whites only library that's for our way black history fact that's something that we wanted to talk about for some time as well because uh, we're kind of coming we're rounding a corner as a show and we're releasing a book and so um making sure that our people have access to the books has been something very important. And so finally we get to share that with you. But first and foremost, we are going to talk about Ebony Excellence in particular, uh, Shikari Richardson. Uh, like Drake said, uh, he's like Shikari smoking on and off the track. Well, she has been true to that bar. I'm going to read from people. She is now the world's fastest woman. The American Sprinter 23 flew past her competition this weekend and ran the final 100 meter race in 10.65 seconds to win gold at the World Athletics Championships on Monday night in Budapest, Hungary. Uh, her time was a record for the women's 100 meter at the World Championships. Quote, I would say never give up, Richardson said afterwards, according to the Associated Press. She goes on to say, never allow media, never allow outsiders, never allow anything but yourself and your faith determine who you are. I would say always fight no matter what fight. Uh, Richardson's gold medal win caps off a two-year comeback after she was left off the Team USA roster for the Tokyo Olympics and banned for a month using marijuana or using marijuana. A controversial suspension that was debated across the sports world and even saw President Joe Biden questioning the U.S. anti-doping agency's rule on the drug. Uh, hence Drake's bar, smoke them on and off the track. I thought that was so clever because, you know, he's on the track and She's on the track and he <laughs> smokes other MCs and she smokes other athletes. You, know, you get it. Anyway, um, on Monday night, the Dallas, Texas native outran five-time world champion Shelly Ann Frazier-Price and former Olympic gold medalist Sharika Jackson to win the gold. Uh, quote, she is the best in the world, NBC Sports announcer Lee Diffie proclaimed after Richardson crossed the finish line, covering her mouth in shock as she looked up to the scoreboard to see the race results. And if that's not Ebony Excellence, if that's not a comeback story, I don't know what is. So once again, shout out to Shikari Richardson. You have made us all proud. And even when you were going through your drama, we still held you down on this show. 
and uh, we're going to continue to support you. Now, Dr. Tacola, I love saying that. Mm-hmm. When I when I first met you, you weren't Dr. Tacola yet. And so that's a tremendous accomplishment. Um, and again, you've been on the show to talk to us about social justice activism, these sorts of things. But we're now introducing a side of you to the world that is very special. And this is something that is has always been near and dear to your heart as long as I've known you. So let's talk about your educational background and why you chose to study to become a sustainability scientist now. That's, such, that's so impressive. So, so give us that background. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've always had a passion for, uh, the environment, a passion for wildlife, um, and getting into the field, uh, as an undergraduate, as an environmental scientist. Um, initially I was actually in, uh, wildlife biology and I kept finding that this kind of roadblock, like climate change is going to kill all animals. So it doesn't matter how many trees I plant. It doesn't matter how much like restoration that we do. It's like, if climate change is still here, like that's the problem. Yeah. And as I uh, learned more and as I grew in my analysis, I realized one, uh, my father is actually a refugee from Ethiopia. Yeah. And um, he, the way he said he left when there was like, uh, they took out the king, like kind of stuff hit the fan. And, uh, and, He's like, I, I fled for more. But when I started learning more, what really caused the political instability at the root of it was the drought, um, a drought caused by climate change. And so even himself, uh, he is, an, I consider, a climate refugee. Okay. And so I started realizing that this is so much more than like, um, we always talk about climate change. That was going to affect the polar bears, but it's it's affecting people. It's affecting the most vulnerable people. It's... um. And it's going to, it's the defining issue of our time. And especially as we think about going forward, we uh, are going to hit 2030 is one of those milestones that if we don't make certain behaviors before then, if we don't change our fuel systems before then, we'll, uh, it really changes uh, our future and the livability of our future. Um, and so in, uh, as an undergraduate, as an environmental scientist, I found myself doing all this research and doing this studies around like, okay, when is the last, you know, the last starfish going to die? When is the last rhino going to die? And I was like, this is depressing. I want to do something. You know, I've always been an activist. And so uh, looking at like, what can we do about it? Um, and I was told actually when I was um, interning for NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, um, and was able to see the uh, zooplankton starting to dissolve and they make up the bottom of the food chain. Yeah. And I'm like, we're the federal government. We have yeah. to do something. Yeah. And they're like, that's not our job as scientists. We're going to write another report. And I was like, oh, I'm in the wrong field then. So I got into politics. I started doing activism around the climate and um Really what switched me to sustainability is that sustainability as a science is really more solution oriented. It's like, what do we do about it? We're not just going to report how bad the problem is. We're going to do something about it. And that's always been my mission to take the science to the sidewalks for too long. Communities of color have felt like, oh, this is a white people thing. But not only are we dying at the highest rates, but also like we deserve to be at the table because when our communities come forward, we come with innovative solutions. And so that's why I wanted 
that's why I went to sustainability science because I want to be a part of the change and I want to be solution oriented to the climate crisis. Sure, sure. Now, um, for a lot of folks, you know, before we get to like the most vulnerable people, because obviously, you know, environmental racism as a term exists for a reason. But before we get there, in recent, even weeks, but certainly recent months and years, we've seen a lot of very intense things happen around the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, I want you to speak to our listeners a bit about any connection that there may be between some of the more recent goings on and this this climate change issue yeah. and 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 we'll, we'll and then I have a follow up question after we're done. So we'll start there. So, uh July was the hottest month on earth's record. Right. We've never experienced that before and that's directly caused by humans. It's mm-hmm. directly caused climate change is because of the fossil fuels that we put in the atmosphere that's causing this now. Okay. Um the Maui's fire it's again um was not only caused by climate change but also colonialism because um once the colonizers took over hawaii colonizers being the united states they changed the management and so indigenous um the indigenous people of hawaii had a different management technique that was protecting the island once they started creating monocrops they started uh removing the water from the areas that made it more vulnerable then you add climate change that's why maui burned down i read about that yeah um then you look at uh a lot of the things like the hurricane Hillary that just hit, that was the first hurricane that hit in over 80 years in California. Um, that again was caused by climate change. So, um, the wildfires that, uh, are affecting really the whole world, but more specifically, we know in, in Canada, they had caused, um, smoke in new york We're seeing it in Seattle as well. We're seeing it in California, these wildfires. Again, caused by climate change, made worse by uh, by Western or colonial um, management techniques. So now I want to shift our focus to eventually I I, want to talk about the environmental racism. Right. But before we get there, let's talk about how. This affects poor people, maybe unhoused people, you know, uh, you and I both live in a place that's very hot. And so um, I was reading something recently that I was really kind of reading a piece that gave me some insight into what day-to-day life is like for folks who are unhoused. And because most people just kind of live their lives and don't really take a moment to, I, I guess, pull back the curtain and, and examine the humanity, um, that, that there's a human being there that is only fiscally poor. And as a result of that, suffering at, at the worst end of, you know, everything that's happening with respect to the climate. Um, I want to get your thoughts on kind of what that must be like or give some insight to our listeners uh, on how they're affected. Yeah. So um, the unsheltered communities, communities who do not have housing, um, who are living outside, mm-hmm. are the most vulnerable to climate change because climate change is causing increased natural disasters. If you don't have shelter, that means that you're facing that with no protection. Yeah. Um, in Phoenix, or uh, the la- uh, in July, they just released the, um, they call it the transient death list. I don't like to use that term, um, but the unsheltered death list, um, they just released 
over 312 people died in um, Maricopa, over 200 in Phoenix. And the thing that is difficult in determining these deaths, they won't immediately call them heat deaths. They, you know, have to do all sorts of autopsies and investigations. But um, it does feel like uh, a smokescreen to really because over 200 people dying in, in in one city in one month is a crisis um but they're saying oh well they had drugs in their system so it could have been the drugs but you know we know like if you're living outside you're gonna have to take coping method methods you know maybe it's drugs maybe it's alcohol but that doesn't that's not why they died you know and it could have been a contributing factor but we know that this is definitely was caused by the extreme heat and so when uh whether it's you know extreme heat whether it's the hurricanes whether it's um flooding all of the people who don't have shelter they're going to die first and the worst part is that our society has deemed them unworthy because of you know the capitalist society we live in they're like well if you don't if you don't succeed in capitalism blame yourself pull yourself up by your bootstraps it allows us not to have humanity for them because 200 people dying in a month that should be a crisis. There should be, you know, federal funds. There should be emergency. We should do something. But because of this narrative, they're able to say they're not worthy. And then when we look at who makes up the unsheltered populations, by and large, across the United States, black and indigenous people are the people dying for um, are at the highest rates of um, being unsheltered. Mm-hmm. And so this is, again, homelessness. Um, this is this is a communities of color issue. Now, um, let's take this a step further, okay? Um, I want to do a bit of reading. I'm going to read from nrdc.org. And we're going to talk a bit about environmental racism. Um, These things are connected, but it's going to sound like a shift in topic, but follow me. Um, The lead in Flint, Michigan's water, the toxic petrochemical plants in Louisiana's Cancer Alley, the raw sewage backing up into homes in Centerville, Illinois, and the oil and gas projects that overburden some U.S. tribal reservations, looking at you, Dakota Access Pipeline, all have at least one thing in common. They're, they're all examples of environmental racism. The, fa- the phrase environmental racism was, was coined by civil rights leader Dr. Benjamin F. Chavis Jr. He defined it as the inter- intentional sitting uh, sorry, the intentional siting of pollution and waste facilities in communities primarily populated by African-Americans, Latinos, indigenous people, Asian-Americans, and Pacific Islanders, migrant farm workers, and low-income workers. Study after study has since shown that those communities are disproportionately exposed to fumes, toxic dust, ash, soot, and other pollutants such as hazardous facilities located in their midst. As a result, they faced increased risks of health problems like cancer and respiratory issues. Um, Now, when you combine these, the the dirty business practices that lead to disparate healthcare outcomes for black and brown people in black and brown communities with the dirty business practices that contribute to climate change, you realize that Black and brown people are at the receiving end of the worst of both issues. Um, I want to talk to you a bit about 
maybe some of the things in your estimation that might lead to environmental racism, people feeling like they can get away with this. Yeah, so it has to do with a few things. One, uh, the social determinants of health, which is a sociological term, which is a lot of big words for um, tell me where you live and I'll tell you um, how, you know, how you're living. Like, uh, and so based on your neighborhood, it can determine like what grocery stores do you have access to? What's zoned into your neighborhoods? Because a lot of black and brown neighborhoods oftentimes are zoned industrial. It makes the housing cheaper, so more affordable, but it also means that dirty industries can pollute there. Sure. Um, and then you have the issues of redlining. And so um, decades of disinvestment, um, again, cause the communities to be more vulnerable. So with all this combined, it makes our communities um, less healthy so more vulnerable to these impacts and it also means that um we're gonna have uh more pollutants into our neighborhoods and so when you look at uh in a lot of cities uh be it seattle and phoenix um i can speak to specifically the difference between living in the south end and the north end can have up to a decade of difference in lifespan mm -hmm. just um the same city but we're living in two different realities based on our zip code and so it makes a huge difference and they're able to do uh they like to call it you know this colorblind racism where they're like oh we're not targeting them we just happen to put this industrial plant in their neighborhood you know um and so they're able to you know they talk about racism without racist mm -hmm. um but they're still contributing to killing black and brown lives when in phoenix for example people in the south end they have higher rates of asthma that means when covid hit they're more likely to die exactly. and so it has all of these additional impacts and again why do they have the highest rates of asthma they have the highest rates of pollutants because it was zoned industrial you know there's uh Something that Q and I talk about on the show quite a bit, um, we have been rightfully critical of capitalism in general. Um, and there's been some pushback here and there because there are people who are fans of capitalism. Um, it does have its benefits. I will cede that. Um, when it's unfettered, it becomes problematic for everyone. But and on this show, at least, we don't really, we, we try to have a human first approach to things. And we realize that capitalism causes really bad people to become very powerful. And they are often given to their worst instincts, greed and apathy, right? And so you start to see that it's, you know, when you were, you were mentioning that, you know, people can can call it like colorblind racism. It's, it's, they're not intentionally targeting a neighborhood. They're just going where they're going to get the least funk, where they're going to get the least pushback, where the people have the least amount of political power and the least capacity, the lowest capacity to actually stop something like that from happening. In other words, these corporations go after the most vulnerable because it's cheaper to go after them. It protects their bottom line more than going after an affluent neighborhood to put some industrial waste plant there. And uh, again, the fact that oftentimes these communities are disenfranchised, it ensures that people will continue to make money hand over fist and then go live in a community where it's free from pollutants and free from really the, the harshest effects of climate change and on and on. And then we're stuck at the bottom again. And so now you're starting to see why this was kind of an important topic that I wanted to discuss. I want to read a little bit more and then I want to get some more of your thoughts. Um, 
So why does environmental racism exist? All right. It's a form of systemic racism, and it exists largely because of policies and practices that have historically and to this day favored the health, well-being, and consumer choices of white communities over those of non-white, low-income communities. Case in point, General Iron is a metal shredding business that operated in Chicago's predominantly white, wealthy Lincoln Park neighborhood. In 2018, emails showed that city officials from then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel uh, his administration pushed the business to move out of this neighborhood. And after community members complained and to make way for a multi-billion dollar private real estate development, uh, the city then struck a deal to relocate the polluting operation to Chicago's predominantly Latino, low income and working class South Southeast side neighborhood. So you start to realize that there's big business, there's crony capitalism, there's, um, people that do these kind of backdoor deals and not only like where, where you and I might think, well, why don't they just clean up their business practices? There's, there's no governmental incentive to do it and really no uh, consequences if they don't. Right. Um, I, I recall uh, the former president, I won't say his name, but him kind of dismantling certain parts of the EPA uh, to make it easier for companies to pollute in the interests of, you know, business. And when everyone looks at that and is like, okay, well, that's good for business. You don't look at the effects of how does this affect the communities around it. But those communities, again, the voices don't often make it that far. And so I'm glad that there's people like you and that you would come up on the show and, and help people learn a little bit more. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the whole idea of jobs versus the envi environment is such a false dichotomy that was created by big businesses, but there's no jobs on a dead planet. Thank you. And we're already seeing that. The farmers, the impacts of this extreme heat wave, so many, um, some of the work that I do, some of the mutual aid work that we do, we bring up, um, produce, uh, from directly from farms to, uh, up to the Navajo Nation. Um, and what we found was uh, the farms are saying, we don't have the crops. They all died. Mm. Um, and so... You know, like this is that's a huge job impact Where when you're looking at the cost of rebuilding entire cities like Maui, that's a huge in economic impact. And so the longer that we put off addressing climate, the more expensive it's going to become. Yeah. But it's also important to talk about, um, you know, uh, while it's important to recycle, it's, um, you know, like ride your bike when you can use public transit. The reality is two thirds of emissions are caused by 90 corporations. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we have to hold these corporations responsible. They're destroying our future. They're destroying everything. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, I, I know that there's a whole lot more for us to talk about here. So uh, I would appreciate if you stick around because I definitely want to cover the rest of this with you. Yeah.